Um, that basically means that I name this state. What you're really doing is you're learning to name the awakened state for the awakened state. And uh, the whole of the spiritual life is uh, just that process naming the awakened state as the awakened state. If it isn't the awakened state, how do you get it back to the awakened state? And if it is the awakened state, to make sure you remember it and you don't forget it. So, Namo, Tassa, Bhagavato, Arato, Sama, Sambuddhasa. All right, so, so that's our opening. Uh, um, try to move as uh, recollectedly and as peacefully as you can, not only in your meditation sessions, but in your transition sessions. So, for instance, when you finished your hour, don't just jump up and run out the door, but try to stand up mindfully, try to move mindfully. As you open and close doors, try to be mindful. As you uh, do your walking meditation, try to be mindful, try to be aware. If your mind is restless, feel free to walk very fast. Standard walking meditation practice is 17 steps long. There's a reason for that. Basically because there are what they call 17 thought moments in a moment of consciousness. So in any moment of consciousness which lasts one hundredth of a this has 17 thought moments in it. The reason there are 17 is because there's considered to be 17 thought moments in an individual arising of consciousness. So that's why the walking space in insight meditation is 17 paces long. I suggest that if you're new to the whole thing, that you try to walk mindfully in a circuit or back and forth on a line. So you can kind of pace it out for yourself, uh, 17 feet or 17 steps on the lawn or whatever. If you're new to it, don't be so rigid about it. But uh, the idea of having a walking space is so that you're not looking around and wandering all over the place with your attention. You're basically bringing all your attention and all your focus as much as you can, given your experience, how new you are or how old you are in terms of experience. Basically, you're trying to bring all your attention 18 inches in front of your face. If you're new, think light. If you have more experience, you can be a little tighter on it. So your concentration goes a little deeper. There are seven types of meditation in the world, usually divided into two sections, either samatha practice or insight practice. Samatha practice is basically meditation devices that help you concentrate and calm, develop calm and concentration, that lead to bliss. If you can maintain your calm and you can maintain your concentration, for a certain amount of time, there's only one place consciousness can go. That's bliss. The calm and the concentration inevitably lead to bliss. There are six kinds of classical meditation that focus on that. There's a seventh meditation which basically leads from calm into insight. And the key for insight practice is question. 
the examination of or what they call analytical meditation. You're actually going to be given a choice here between samatha and what is called vipassana, insight. So vipassana means to look again. Look, and then look again. So uh, vipassana is very appealing to what kind of people? Analytical, analytical people. Scientists, analytical people have a, a large propensity to insight meditation because it's look and look again and look again and look again. And you're looking again on the basis of a question. Samatha meditation is very appealing to bliss bunnies, <laughs> artists, musicians, greed types who like to dwell in swimming pools for endless hours, basking in the luxury of the sensorial delights. Um, samatha is very popular with these. Now there are six kinds of samatha meditation. Uh, which I'm briefly going to name just to give you some background. But uh, the first one I'm going to mention is mudra. And mudra means movement. Now, what kind of movement meditations do you have? Anybody? Prostration? Tai Chi? Tai Chi yoga? Aikido? Baseball? Football? Hockey? Lacrosse? Swimming? Gardening? Golf? Golf? Skiing. Horseback what separates riding. Hmm? Horseback, riding. horseback riding? What separates meditation from not meditation? What makes meditation meditation is bringing recollectedness into what your activity is. So why do you think yoga might be somewhat more conducive to meditation than golf? Intention. The, the difference between golf as meditation and yoga as meditation is you're doing yoga with the intention of bringing your awareness into the body and its movements to the deepest degree you can while the body is moving. So you hold the yoga position right, in order to relax the muscles and relax into the tension that might be stored in the body but the postures change so that you learn how to hold the yogic mind when you're in a posture, but also between postures. And this is very why I say be mindful of the gap. Be mindful of the transition from when you're doing Tai Chi or Qigong or whatever you're doing, golf, right, and when you're not, so that you bring the same attention into it in, in uh, no matter what your movement is. Same thing with the Keto or anything else that's more dynamic, Karate, which is more active. Right? You want to bring your awareness into the body and how the body is functioning. And we'll talk more about this here tomorrow under the body of the Buddha. The body of the Buddha is represented in this lifetime in the body of the Guru. So what you're trying to do uh, in a way uh, with the body meditation is bring your body energy, your body dynamic, your body balance, into the same vibratory resonance as the guru who's supposed to be in the same resonance as the Buddha himself. And remember, Buddha isn't a man particularly. Buddha is a state of being or a state of consciousness. So when you think uh, Buddha body, you shouldn't think uh, just a dead guy who was awakened, but that it, your Buddha body is when your body is in synchronicity, resonance with the ground of being minus defilements.
Now the defilements we'll talk about in the future, but for now defilements come from basically pain. Largely emotional and psychological pain that gets stored in the body. The body holds those tensions as a habitual ego reference point until they're released. So you will experience in your spiritual life some degree of physical discomfort in the process of realizing your Buddha body because the stored discomfort in your body comes from conditioning based on pain, hurt, sorrow, lamentation, and so on and so on. So there is a process in meditation where as the body meets an obstacle conditioned from the life, as it meets an obstacle, it kind of does that lock thing or it does that kind of pain thing. And so the process of mudra meditation is to help you to relax or release. But of course, you've seen a massage where it's hurt. You know, you don't tell the masseuse to stop massaging. You might tell them to lighten up, but you don't tell them to stop because that stored tension, that stored pain needs to release. And so yoga, uh, for one, is uh, one place to do that. Meditators are by nature reflective. They're, they're looking at their processes and you have a whole lifetime of processes that says don't look at that which is doing the processing only be busy with the processing so the minute you stop as you know the minute you stop being busy with life and you start to look at that which does the processing the processor it starts to get a little heavy so that's why you distract yourself from peace you distract yourself from calm in order to keep yourself busy so that you don't notice the underlying tensions. So that's mudra, or movement. And then of course the Tibetans have all these hand uh, things they do uh, to keep their hands busy because you remember that old adage from when you were a kid, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Mm -hmm. So they keep your hands busy because if your hands are busy, you're mind is busy and so we have what we call a mala and by using a mala what are you doing with your hands you're keeping your hands busy these are not meant to be religious ornaments so much as they're really meant to keep your attention focused and by keeping your hands busy you are helping keeping your mind occupied and rather than having your mind on the latest stock prices you're going to have your mind busy on this uh, experience called Manjushri. Then you have uh, uh, sound. So sound would be mantra. Mantra means mind tool. It's uh, like trowel. Trowel in English. Mantra. Tra is the root for trowel or tool. So it's remember English is a is an Indo-European language so there's a lot of borrowing going on there. Man, mano becomes in English mind. So a mind trowel or a mind tool. So again, the purpose of mantra is to keep your mind occupado. Mm -hmm. Occupado with what? Work, relationships, money, grants, holidays, boyfriends, girlfriends. No, we're going to hopefully keep your mind busy with mantra. And what is the intention of mantra versus the intention of, say, money? Money, money is rooted in, money is rooted in insecurity, right? like survival. Mantra is rooted in your aspiration, 
And your aspiration for what? For an awakened or a radiant or a Buddha-like or a cosmic or a universal experience. Mantra, meditation, yoga, is to put your attention somewhere else other than those addictive things that don't really work in the end. And so through that aspiration, your consciousness actually starts to take on the qualities of that which you're imitating. So you know when you're a kid, a little girl, you used to go around and you'd get your mom's shoes and her necklaces or you get your dad's shoes or his hat or something and you put your dad's shoes on and you ever do that? And you'd walk around the house with your mom's jewelry on and her high heels and you'd fall all over the place. You were imitating her, right? And in the process of imitating, you actually become. So as one of my students says, you fake it till you make it. So you pretend you're a Buddha, you act like you're a Buddha, you think like you're a Buddha, you aspire to be like a Buddha, and if you do it good enough, they call you a Buddha. And of course, the English word bud, meaning to blossom, is the same root for the word Buddha, which is mean, da means foundation, bud means blossom, so the foundation of the blossoming. So I give you tonight the oldest meditation in the world, and you can do this eclectically, on and off, through the course of the retreat, as you see fit. And this oldest meditation in the world is seed, stalk, and flower. So when you're in your hometown, Strom, what is the seed of your consciousness focused on, on a normal day-to-day basis? Objects. What kind of objects? Whatever. Family. Family. Okay, we'll stick with that one, family. So if your seed is family, what's going to happen from that seed? Family issues, yeah? All the family issues. And if the stock is family issue, what kind of flower are you going to have? Family issues. So let's say the seed is your Buddha nature. What's the stock going to be? Buddha nature. Buddha nature. What's the flower going to be? Buddha nature. Buddha realization. So seed, stock, and flower is very important because seed basically is karma. Where your attention goes, what your mind is on about, what your aspiration is, is going to determine what kind of flower you have. We'll talk about this more later as well. So basically what's being said here is that meditation is really saying the seed of this moment's consciousness is Buddha realization, regardless of the activity I'm doing. And yoga, or tai chi, or aikido, is a little easier to produce a Buddha realization than is stock market prices. Because stock market prices are pretty much rooted in greed and fear. The operating principle in the stock market is greed and fear. What's the operating principle in family, usually? Security. Security. Support. Control. Comfort. Identity. Hmm? So what kind of flower are you going to get? Security. Hmm? Hopefully it works. So on and so on. I have to make it very clear that the, the teaching isn't anti-money nor is it anti-family. All it's saying is that if your mind is occupied with transient objects, you're going to get transient realization. If your mind is occupied with transcendent object, you are going to get transcendent realization. This is the nature of karma. In this sense, karma means activity. So whatever seed you put in, if you plant a tarragon seed, you're not going to get a 
parsley flour. You're going to get a tarragon flour. This becomes very important when we wonder why our consciousness goes into negative states. Our consciousness goes into negative states for one of two reasons. One, we don't interrupt the seed. We don't question the seed that went in, and we argue about the flower that resulted. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that the seed that we put in is happening from habitual patterns, or that we get triggered into a seed type of consciousness based on what happens to us in the day-to-day world. Meditation really is focused at you taking charge of the seeds rather than you relying on the winds of karma to blow up whatever issue might appear in front of you. The root nature of your consciousness in this lifetime is your early childhood conditioning. And the seeds that go in in early childhood conditioning are aimed principally at non-transcendent goals. Get an education, learn how to read and write, learn how to live in society. These are not bad things by any means, but they're not transcendent things, are they? And so by the time you're 20, your life is obsessed with transient, impermanent, and unsustainable goals. Unsustainable because why? Well, eventually you're going to die, and they're all going to go. So unsustainable goals, whereas the transcendent seeds are with you forever because the transcendent seeds do not depend on what happens to you in this lifetime. So, karma. Seed, stock, and flower. You can spend some time on that. You can spend time on this one whenever you like, uh, even during the day. You know, you're walking down the street in Pana, and uh, somebody uh, cuts you in, cuts in front of you on the bicycle and almost knocks you over. What's the seed there? What's, the, what's your likely response? Anger. Anger. Why does that seed have dominance? Those seeds have been planted previously, but what's the other reason? Is you didn't do anything about it in the moment to not end up in that state. In other words, you let the events overpower your consciousness. Now, the purpose of meditation is twofold. One is to show you what seeds are actually operative. This is not terribly encouraging in the beginning. But it also is telling you how to get in charge of those seeds. How do you be the master of your fate rather than the winds of karma? And a very important difference. So we have movement. We have mantra. We have visualization. So visualization is another form of samatha meditation. Chakra. This you'll see in, in more in meditative uh, practices. Chakric meditation is how the energy is moving through the system. Breathing is the sixth. Breathing is the sixth. And touch. Right? So basically what you notice is that the samatha meditations are all based on the senses. They're sense-based meditations. Sound, visualization, uh, breathing. Not, uh, breathing is interesting because breathing meditation has the merit of going in one or two directions. Breathing meditation can either take you into calm and concentration, leads to bliss. Bliss then goes through multiple levels of bliss. 
or it takes you the other way, it takes you into question, it takes you into insight, which becomes knowledge and wisdom. Now, the teaching tries to balance the knowledge and wisdom aspect with the bliss aspect. The curious thing about it is that they are also contain their opposites. So, in bliss meditation, you go through a various series of levels of bliss, starting out first very gross, uh, kind of a very uh, materially bound, and they get more and more refined and less and less object-orientated uh, as you go. So by the time you get to the fourth Arupa Jhana, it's nothingness. In other words, no object present in the bliss state. The first five Rupa Jhanas are all about form-based. In other words, they're sense-based blisses. The first arupa meaning form. Arupa, non-form, the first arupa jhana is actually transcendent to the sense door. This is important to realize because what happens with bliss meditation is the transcendent experience doesn't come when you're in bliss. The transcendent experience arises when you let go of the bliss. So, if you look at your activities in the sense-based meditations, you'll find what are you really looking for? Please. I can't hear you? Please. Aren't you? Isn't that, when you do sense-based meditations, aren't you looking for the bliss? Mm -hmm. That's good. We like bliss. You are free to have as much bliss as you want. No limitations on the amount of bliss you have. That will take you through the first Rupa Jhana right up to the fifth Rupa Jhana. And I'm just giving you some history. Uh, what happens eventually, though, is bliss becomes too heavy. Consciousness sees bliss as being too heavy, and it moves into the fifth Rupa Jhana. The fifth Rupa Jhana is based in equanimity. So curiously enough, you let go of the bliss, because peace is easier to carry, less baggage, than bliss. Now, don't get me wrong, I think you could all use a whole lot of bliss. So if you get a lot of bliss going this week, don't be in a big rush to go to the fifth Rupa Jhana. Right? Enjoy it. Right? But if you find that the bliss gets a little heavy, you'll notice that consciousness by itself wants to drop the bliss, because it's too sweet. And it's kind of too heavy on the mind. So from the from the fifth rupa jhana, consciousness makes a decision to go into kind of less form-based consciousness. These are formless-based; they're transcendent to the senses. In the process of doing that, you find that every time you let go of a bliss, your bliss gets deeper. This is a huge revelation for the meditator that every time they let go of a bliss state, their bliss actually gets more pervasive and deeper. But the, curiously enough, the feeling in it gets lighter, and it gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, until the being makes the decision to let go of the bliss entirely, and where do you end up then? Insight. The inside guy goes, bliss, 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 don't eat bliss, I need knowledge and wisdom. So the knowledge and wisdom based meditator, what, what, why, do the, why did she wear her hat? on the left side of her head, and how come she's wearing a red hat, and how, why wasn't it, and what did my mother mean when she said I was lazy? Uh, she didn't really, she was lazy, you know, this kind of meditator. 
So uh, as insight meditation deepens, of course, the, the question gets, you, get, you don't get answers, by the way, in insight meditation. What you do is you get better questions. Every time you get a better question, what happens to the first question? It gets answered. So in order to answer this question, you have to ask the question that is behind this question. If you can find the question that exists behind this question, that question gets answered. This becomes very interesting. interesting. And interest is a kind of bliss. bliss. As you go deeper and deeper into insight meditation, your state actually gets more and more blissful. And your questions get more and more quiet. And the most interesting question of all is, what is quiet? And quiet is, by definition, bliss. 